This is the Unmuted Podcast by Mosaic, hosted by Bella Passi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unmuted Podcast. I'm your host, Bella Passi. Unmuted is a podcast where we host conversations on pressing issues in today's society, including things like social protest, Black Lives Matter, COVID, and reconciliation. We will host interviews with a diverse group of students from the PLNU community. Unmuted focuses on topics that may be considered hard to talk about, but show that by having the conversation, we can start the change that is needed in these times. For today's conversation, we will be discussing Black Lives Matter Part 2, Black Men in America. With me, I have two guests, Dr. Jeffrey Carr and Ty Baker. We're so excited to have them here with us today as they share their experiences. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Unmuted. Um, I'm so excited to have our guests here with us today and so excited to talk about this episode's topic. Um, before we start, I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves um, and tell us just a little bit about yourself and why you're here. So my name is Ty Baker. I'm a student here at Point Loma, and I just started uh, two semesters ago. I'm really grateful to be on this podcast, and uh, you know, I feel like the Black Student Union on this campus has really given me a community, and that's something I think every student really needs when they, when they first get out here, especially me being a little bit older, having prior military service. So I'm really grateful to be here and uh, looking forward to this talk. Awesome. Thank you. Yay, Ty. <laughs> We're so happy you're here as well. Thank you for your service, my man. Mm. Appreciate you uh, and everything that you are and that you're doing. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Carr. I'm the Associate Vice President for Student Development here at Point Loma Nazareth University. I'm also the Chief Diversity Officer and uh, Faculty School of Education and the uh, uh, Psychology and Sociology Department. And uh, I've been here at Point Loma for 14 years. And uh, I've had the opportunity to work alongside some fantastic students who are helping to change the world. So happy that you are doing this bod- podcast and you've invited me to share a little bit of my uh, insight and background. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. We're so excited to have you here. Um, so, you know, to provide some context before we start, um, this is a part two to an episode that we had last season in our first semester. Um, so this title is Black Lives Matter. We had um, in our first episode a part one um, where we sat down with um, the board of BSU. Ty, you're also on the board um, and kind of talked about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, what's been going on recently um, in terms of our uh, climate when it pertains to the race conversation, all of those different things. Um, but one thing that we know is that we didn't have a specific perspective there and that was black men in that conversation. Um, So we wanted to make a part two um, to focus not only on, um, not only have black men's perspective in this, but really kind of address a lot of um, the different social um, and racial tensions that I think surround black men right now in America today. Um, So I'm really excited to have this conversation with both of you. Um, As our listeners know, before we kind of dive into the discussion, I always like to provide a historical context um, to kind of frame what we're gonna talk about. This one is a little bit more than normal, so bear with me here. Um, But, you know, I always think it's good to research, and I would encourage you, this is gonna be touched 
barely the surface. Um, so I would always encourage you to research and educate yourself more after this. Um, but to start off, so the Census 2000 Special Report Series that presents several demographic, social, economic, and characteristics uh, collected from the Census 2000 presented that 36.2% uh, million people, or 12.9% of the U.S. total population, reported that they were black. Of this number, 34.4 million people, or 12.2% of the U.S. total population, reported black as their only race, and 1.9 million people, or 0.007%, uh, reported black and one or more other races. So in the last 400 years, Africa has played an integral role in the American life and history. Americans, black and white, have developed various contradictory ideas about the continent. It is both a backward place and source of identity, a place to keep at a distance, and a place to embrace as an ancestral homeland. In recent years, the large African immigrant population in the United States has helped to shape the ideas about the continent, recalibrating black American identities and engaging with the state in various ways. The year 2019 marked the, fourth the 400th anniversary of the landing of 20-odd Negroes in Virginia. Their arrival in 1619 planted the seeds for future U.S.-Africa relations cultivated in the history of transatlantic slave trading. Most American citizens know little about Africa outside of this context, yet the connection black, American, black Americans maintained with the continent over time ensures that Africa remains in their consciousness. So that's a little bit of just a broad history, right, of um, the origins of you know black people in America, how they came over. Um, there's a lot more to that history that we should go into, but we don't have the time for. Um, but I kind of want to also now go into a little bit of um, the statistics behind, I think, the tension with black, mer uh, black men in America today. So one thing I'm going to reference is something called the school to prison pipeline. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of background about that. And then we're kind of going to dive into our conversation. So the school to prison pipeline is a process through which students are pushed out of schools and into prisons. In other words, it's a process of criminalizing youth that is carried out by disciplinary policies and practices within schools that put students into contact with law enforcement. Once they are put into contact with law enforcement for disciplinary reasons, many are then pushed out of the educational environment and into juvenile and criminal justice systems. While black people are just 13% of the total U.S. population, they comprise the greatest percentage of people in prisons and jails, 40%. In contrast, white people make up just 39% of the incarcerated population. Despite the fact that they are the majority race in the U.S., comprising 64% of the national population. Data from, the, data from across the U.S. Uh, that illustrates punishment and school-related arrests show that racial disparity in incarceration begins with the school-to-prison pipeline. Nationwide, black and indigenous students face far greater rates of suspension and expulsion than do white students. In addition, data compiled by the National Center for Education Statistics show that while the percentage of white students suspended fell from 1999 to 2007, the percentage of black and Hispanic students suspended rose. Given that there is a connection between the experience of suspensions and engagement with the criminal justice system, and given that racial bias within education among police is well documented, it is no surprise that black and Latinx students comprise 70% of those who face referral to law enforcement or school-related arrests. Woo! Okay. Thank you for listening to my voice for a very unreasonable amount of time, but... I just wanted to provide that um, to kind of help people who might not be, I guess, 
totally aware of the situation, um, have some context into what we're going to be talking about today. So the first question I want to ask you guys is, can you briefly describe your story and the major factors in your life, you know, that's led you to this point, um, to this conversation when it comes to, you know, working in the area field of diversity um, and racial reconciliation? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, um, Ms. Passy, <laughs> for starting this conversation uh, with a little bit of context and with history, mm. because um, it's very important that we never forget history and that we have a sense that things just didn't happen overnight. Um, the topic for today is the, um, the, the, the position or standing or the challenges of, of black men in America. And, uh, and I will say America, not so much the rest of the world, because we have a very different kind of history than any other uh, country in the world. If you think about uh, that middle passage from Africa to the Americas uh, that took place uh, over a uh, hundred or so years, uh, that history still has a deep impact on who we are today. And uh, you recall, if you want to talk about history, when blacks were immigrated from the continent, from Africa, and put into servitude as slaves, there was one particular nation, and that nation uh, in, actually had a revolution back in uh, the 1700s. And that revolution overturned the slave owners, and it became the first black independent nation in our hemisphere, and that was in Haiti. That has real impact on how Haitians look at themselves today, some 200 years later, and black Americans who were still embroiled in slavery for an additional 100 years or so past that revolution in Haiti, and the following 100 or so years of legalized oppression mm. of the entire race in the United States of America. And I, part of my history is I come from that oppression. Mm -hmm. I was born and raised in, in Mississippi. I was born in a house, not in a hospital. I was de delivered by my uh, great-grandmother, mm -hmm. who actually delivered all the children in that area because she... Um, that was her job uh, to deliver uh, uh, children. It wasn't an official job. She never got paid for it. She was the one who just had the experience to be a midwife. And I was raised in a culture that was severely oppressed. I drank out of the water fountains. They said white and colored. I experienced racism and discrimination at the, the nth degree that you would see in movies. All of that, I actually lived it. But more importantly, when I was growing up, I saw how other black men lived. Mm. And that had a deep impact on who I was or who I would come to be. For instance, my grandfather, who actually raised me because my father was not in the home all the time, uh, and neither my grandfather or my father had anything above a third grade education. And that was by design of the oppression that they experienced because education was a key to escaping that oppression, so education was withheld. The reason I bring that up is all of that influences our society today. You can't really look at who black men are in this society without looking at what they've inherited. Mm -hmm. 
And some would say, and I actually agree because I heard a psychologist speak about this, that some of the trauma that we feel as individuals is passed on genetically through DNA from generation to generation. So we can't escape that. So when I look at you starting off with history and then showing some of the statistics that are a result of that history, they're not because of people who are living today. It's not because of what someone did in 2002 or 2008. Mm -hmm. They're living out the history that has been developed over hundreds of years. And that's important for us to realize because I know that's what my history is. Mm-hmm. I actually remember being in surroundings where my grandfather, who was a, one of the greatest men I've ever known, had to bow his head and speak in a very um, calm manner to whites. Whether it was a, a three or four year old little white boy or a 40 or 56 year old white man, he had to show deference and respect to any white person. And you couldn't look at a white woman at all. That would lead to you being possibly killed. Everyone knows who Emmett Till is? Mm -hmm. That is what happened in the South if you looked at a white woman. Those are kind of things that are kind of inbred in you, and you have to adjust to it, and it grows through time. On the opposite side of that, we have a culture that has been... Um, educated to provide uh, stereotypes of other cultures, especially black men, and to stigmatize them as being less than and being um, uh, less than human, less educated, uh, less a part of the, the culture that we say that we're part of. And when you do that, both those who are black and non-black are caught in this almost inescapable, inescapable cycle where you're looking at people differently based on how you've been acculturated through time. That is the background that I come from, and uh, it is something that you have to realize. You can't start a conversation in 2021 just thinking about what happened last year or the year before that. That uh, tragic event with George Floyd when he was um, was murdered, uh, you know, officially by uh, the police department. And uh, it, it was an outrage for the rest of the country. But for those of us who lived through it, we understand this is a culmination of what's been in place for hundreds of years. It wasn't just that one day. We've seen this over and over And black men have been particularly um, a target in those kinds of race relations. They have been a target because they've been seen as a threat. I go back to Haiti. One of the things that came out of the Haiti uh, uprising revolution, where they overthrew the slave masters, is in the United States, they doubled down on their efforts to control blacks in the states who were slaves, or even if you were freemen. They double down. We are afraid of them because if we don't do something, they're going to take back that power and we're going to lose our status. More importantly, their finances. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that really impacts uh, who I am and where I come from. I actually, you know, uh, I was just thinking as I came into this room and I mentioned to you that I was uh, uh, teaching in some of the uh, schools here on campus. um, I was thinking about my experience 
when thinking about other undergrads here. I went to a college at a Christian university, predominantly white. And by predominantly white, I mean less than 10 mm. blacks and no Hispanics, no Asians at the entire school that was larger than this school. My undergraduate uh, experience, I never had one professor that wasn't white. Wow. Mm. Every one of my professors were all white, and about 80% were white men. Mm. I was never uh, involved in any educational process that talked about the culture, the history, and all of the things that, um, that create the issues of racism in the United States. We never discussed this at this Christian university. It's actually bigger than Portland. It's huge, huge university. When I went to um, another um, predominantly white school for my master's degree, I did not have one single black professor at that university, mm. not one. I did have about 50-50 male, female, but they were all white, one Asian. When I uh, went to another university for my doctoral studies, I had zero uh, black instructors with the exception of one, with the exception of one. That particular uh, professor is the reason that I'm involved in diversity and inclusion today. She actually taught a class of multicultural education. And from that, my doctoral research dissertation was based on uh, some of the issues involved with educating blacks in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about where I come from. I've had a, 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 an interesting journey in terms of my education, having no black uh, professors to share with me, or black administrators, to, for that fact, to share with me uh, some of their um, perceptions, uh, their perspectives on what the, the world is. And uh, that brings me to where I am today because now I want to be part of an educational system that actually hears from more than one perspective. Mm. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. And I think that's something that's really important is talking about the history. You know, something that you mentioned, you know, um, that you didn't have any professors growing up that were, mm. that were white. I mean, that's something I, I want to go to med school. Mm. I keep a letter of rejection um, from this black med school applicant mm -hmm. who didn't make it in 45 years ago because of their Negro race. Mm -hmm. I keep that above my desk every day. And that's 45 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do the math, you can think about it like these systematic, the systematic racism that's in this country has, has allowed, um, you know, black African-Americans to suffer because of those opportunities that are missed. And you just got to think of the generational wealth that stopped you know, and, and like you said, talked about finances. I mean, that's ultimately that's the biggest thing that um, I feel is is really not accessible to, to a lot of African American families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, me growing up, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It's not not the best place you want to grow up, um, but I had my mom, and my mom has polio. She uh, she was in a wheelchair, single mom. So we we it was me and her. We took care of everything, and you know, I didn't have a father growing up. So um, I think. I think seeing what was happening on my street, on my block, like, you know, seeing people get hemmed up, go to jail, you know, someone I'd known for five years, six years, think they're a good kid, I spend every day with them afternoon, and, you know, they're selling whatever on the corner, you know, and then seeing the one kid who maybe, maybe got a scholarship and made it to college. But it was almost like that impossible factor, 
you know, where, and I think we see this today with so many African Americans in, in our youth, like, you know, who do we idolize? Mm -hmm. Entertainment, ball players, football players, because that's almost in a way what we subconsciously think is like, that's how we can make it. Mm -hmm. We can't make it through that education pipeline. And that's not because of us. That's not because of doubt, self-doubt. You know, when you don't have someone to tell you, hey, you know, Ricky, you can do it. You know, hey, you're smart. Hey, you deserve this. How do you expect to, to elevate to that level? Um, so I, I definitely think that that's, that's super important to, to continue to grow our um, African-American community as far as education goes, because mm -hmm. we do need more people looking out for one each other, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it's very hard to relate for a young African-American boy when he sees, you know, uh, you know, like, like you said, I grew up in a very small, very small community, um, and everybody was tight-knit, and then in the middle school, I moved to a uh, really wealthy town. My mom had this idea. She was like, you know what? All your friends are getting in trouble. I'm not letting this happen to you, not my son. So she took me. We moved to Wayne, New Jersey, like five minutes down the road, complete, di completely different town. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a BMW. Everybody had a Mercedes. I was one of three African-Americans mm -hmm. and one of two males. We didn't even talk to each other, all mm -hmm. three of us. And that was a part of that assimilation as well to, you know, want to be liked, you know, okay, I'm in this new town. And that's how we all felt subconsciously. You know, I'm in this new town. How do I, how do I become liked? How do I become accepted? I'm getting these eyes on me. These professors or, or teachers at the time might not think I'm the most intelligent. You know, they might have eyes on me if I'm at the cafeteria because they think I might grab something, you know. And, and, and those things are very daunting to a young you know, young boy. And I think that that's, that's really where we start, you know, by, with our youth. Um, I remember when I was in, so I moved to middle school, like I said, in, in elementary school, I never learned cursive. Mm -hmm. I got there in middle school. It was Anthony Wayne Middle School. I remember like the, like it was yesterday. And I checked in on the first day and uh, the teacher said, hey, do you know cursive? I was like, no, I never learned that. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay. And I was put in these like smaller classes. Now, like, you got to think psychologically as, like, a young African-American boy who's already watching everybody around him, you know, go into, you know, the wrong path and, you know, growing up without a father, growing up with, without much hope, you know, except for, you know, Jay-Z, you know, uh, NFL, all these things. For me, I was like, you know, I'm already in these small classes. They already think I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not capable so it wasn't until I had, I had one teacher, one teacher. He was the only black teacher in that school. And he almost mentored me in a way, which I didn't know at the time, but he would just come to me like every day after class and be like, hey, how you doing? Did you do your homework? You know, how's your mom's, you know? He knew my situation. And uh, I think, I honestly, I look back and his name is Mr. Richards. And I look back and I think he's the only reason why I'm here today, you know, pursuing a, an MD. Mm. I think... Uh, being believed in is an absolute must when you're a young man. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I think you guys both touched on some interesting things. Um, I think one of the like, immediate things I noticed was the commonality of you both had somebody in your life um, who impacted you to get you to this point where you are now. Um, somebody who you know looked like you and you could relate to in that way. Um, that's part of the reason we try to have these conversations, but I think especially 
in the context of this world, why, you know, as we're raising up future generations, we want to have um, people they can look to and relate to um, to start creating change in the world. And I think, Dr. Carr, what you said about, you know, how important history is and knowing the history um, is going to then really determine the perception you have of people now and the f- issues that we're facing now. Um, Because my next question, we're going to be talking about, you know, what the social perception is kind of of the situation um, when it comes to race in America looks like. And I think speaking as somebody from the outside of it, um, if you don't know the history of it, your perception is so skewed a little bit in that. Because you were, why is he reacting that way? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't react that way. Well, you're not that person. Exactly. Right. You don't yeah. know what they're dealing with and how much they're bringing to the table, how much baggage they have that helps influence their perception. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I want to launch into that then mm-hmm. of, you know, what do you think the general perception is um, right now when it comes to how black men are viewed in America today? Mm-hmm. Well, I will... I will Defer to Ty. You can start, and I'll just okay. Because you you can deal more with things from a contemporary basis, right? Because you are a young person, you are a student. I have a more longitudinal perspective of that. I would love to hear what you have to say. So I definitely think current day, a lot of people are having conversations. You know, I think there is more awareness, mm-hmm. but I also think there's more fear, mm-hmm. and and that's just you know there's always been that fear, but now it's out in the light. You know, you go to the grocery store and I can feel it. Like, I, I'm sure you can feel it, too. There's that energy where it's like, you know, there might be a you know Caucasian person in front of me. They're unsure. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't want to say the wrong thing to me. They know now maybe possibly the things that I've gone through and the things that, you know, people that look like me have gone through. But they, they there is almost a fear to to have that conversation um, you know, and, and it's understandable. I can understand, you know, putting myself in their shoes, being Caucasian, growing up, having nothing to do with, you know, slaves, having nothing, no racism, you know, internally at least, you know, and not necessarily thinking that you participate in the systematic racism. You might feel like, you know, hands up. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say anything. I don't want to be, I don't want to make this guy feel off and I think that's the biggest thing is um, you know people are afraid people are afraid to have a conversation mm. and they uh, they feel they feel on edge it's mm. it's across the board and uh, you can see it even with other African Americans you know we sometimes feel that way towards each other just because of that you know just like we talked about with history I mean that's that's way way back this isn't 2021 you know all of that stuff builds on and you know when you have like look at James Baldwin you know one of the famous uh, writers in Malcolm X's era when you think uh, about the things that he said you know he talked about uh, like a, a specific quote he said was sometimes you're walking down the street and you hear footsteps behind you and you look back and you realize it's a white man and you feel at ease mm. and that's an African-American saying that so that just comes down to you know there's a there's a fear that's being put out, you know, through media, through current events, through the past, you know, political um, situation that we were dealing with. And I think now we're at a point where we can finally come together and, and really kind of resolve a lot of these issues through communication, through podcasts like this, mm-hmm. just putting it out in the open. Well, you are a lot more hopeful than I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I think we have to have hope. Mm. Right. Uh, we have to have a sense that we can be better than what we are. I will tell you that um, the, the whole image of the black man has been one that has been uh, vilified mm. through time. And uh, it's the least uh, acceptable uh, phenotype, uh, have been uh, characteristics have been attributed to black men as being uh, almost uh, animalistic. Mm. Mm. And they uh, cannot control themselves uh, in many respects, especially uh, of being overly violent, overly sexual, uh, overly um, just, um, just powerful in terms of their physique, physique. And it is something that has been so ingrained in, in people that they don't even know themselves how much they have been indoctrinated mm. to feel as if they should fear the black man. Not because of anything a black man has done, but because of what it represents and the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes that have been pushed forward throughout time. And I think that that is still um, the case today. I think it's still being played out in different ways. I think uh, something that you said, it was, uh, I'm speaking about you, Ty, that you said um, that people are more careful because they don't want to say the wrong thing to a black man is more of a reaction to finally coming to grips that they need to think differently. Right. But now that you don't know what to say or think, mm. you don't know if this is going to be a hot button, if it's going to be something that's going to put you at risk. Um, but because of, of what happened this past summer, which was an accumulation of things that have happened over the past, you know, since the iPhone came out, because people we've been living experiences for centuries. Mm -hmm. But until we had an iPhone to document it, people right. would just right. dismiss it. Right. So the one thing that I think uh, black people are grateful for is for the invention of the iPhone in 2007. <laughs> so you can no longer go along and say, right. oh, that you, you misunderstood that. That policeman had every right to do what he did. Um, and even in the situation with the uh, fellow who was, uh, I can't remember his name, down in Georgia, who was uh, jogging and these two people mm -hmm. pulled him, uh, tried to pull him over. And then he tried to take a gun from him and he got shot. Uh, you know, they could have reported that differently if they didn't have a recording of it. Mm -hmm. And it, interesting, it was recorded by one of the white men that was part and parcel of all of it. Who was, right. mm -hmm. He was actually uh, um, arrested for his part in it, mm -hmm. and he was the one who recorded it. But without that, we are just coming to the knowledge of these inequities exist against black men. Mm -hmm. And even just all blacks. I mean, we, we think about Oprah Winfrey. She is like a billionaire. And this happened to her back in the 1990s. She went into an exclusive store in New York, in Manhattan. And uh, it was a Hermes store. You know, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah, Hermes. That I, and, uh, and I love their products, and, but I can't <laughs> afford any of them. She goes in this store, and they start following her around the store because she's a black woman, not making the connection. They don't see her as Oprah because she's not on the screen. They only see the black woman. Right. That's all they saw. Mm -hmm. Then once they found out it was Oprah after she called him on, then everything changes. 
But that's how any black person goes into those situations. They are seen as less than. So I think that there is more of a realization, but there's really nothing more that's been done because of the great economic divide. We black men are uh, in the criminal justice systems not because they commit more crimes, but because they are more pursued for crimes Mm. and they don't have the resources to actually engage in the criminal justice system. I mean, you read the stats there, mm-hmm. but the truth of the matter is blacks are not arrested more than whites. They're arrested about the same, but blacks get convicted more and have to serve more time. And that's because there is a continuum of if he's black, he must be guilty. Right. He doesn't have any uh, advocate for him in the criminal justice system, so there is no way to refute that Mm. and so he is in the system and once you go in the system you don't get out of the system Mm. I have members of my family who are in the system they never will get out of the system some states once you go in the system you can never even vote Mm -hmm. so they're disenfranchised from every part of wanting to be a participant in society The more you're not a participant in society, the more alienated you become and the more likely you are to be involved in something else that could cause you to be arrested again or put in the system again. So this never-ending cycle continues, and it's not going to go away just because George Floyd was brutally murdered back uh, on Memorial Day weekend of 2020. Mm -hmm. It's not, and that's one of the biggest mistakes we make. There was an outcry across this nation, even throughout the entire world, that we've got to stop, we've got to change. Mm -hmm. How many black men have been shot and killed since then? Mm -hmm. The numbers are too many. In in Wisconsin, the young man who was getting his car unarmed was shot six times. He will be paralyzed for life. Mm -hmm. Nothing's changed. Mm We want to think of something. We're having more conversations, but has the number of black men who've been incarcerated, has that gone down? Because it is an, it's, a, it's a system here. It's actually a for-profit system here in the United States. Right. And it also, as you talk about history, go back in history, the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. The 13th Amendment is what made it possible for, and it was actually devised specifically to make slaves out of black men. Mm-hmm. Right prison system. And it it created the prison system and it actually deputized all white men at any point. You can arrest a black man if you think he's doing something that's incorrect. And again, that's been attached to DNA for the past 150 years that that's been going on. Citizen's arrest. A citizen's arrest. Any white man can uh, arrest any black man at any time if he thinks he's doing something. And when they were arrested, what did they do? They put them back working on the same cotton fields that they were slaves just a few years before. Mm-hmm. They were back picking cotton free of charge. That's, that whole system continues today. And I, uh, I look at that system and go, maybe they're not picking cotton, but there's so many other aspects of our society that they are being left out of as black men because they've been targeted for hundreds of years. Again, let's not make the mistake that because of renewed interest, more conversation, more knowledge, that that has changed. Mm -hmm. It has not changed. And I don't want to be a, well, how can I say this? 
not a Debbie Downer, but a Donald Downer <laughs> and, and, and bring all the heavy. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is when we look at it, we may be upset and, and maybe disappointed. That's a result of literally hundreds of years of assimilation and acculturation mm-hmm. that we have to deal with as, as, a, as, a, as a country and as people. Mm-hmm. That's real. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think with that, um, that African-American young man who was actually a service member, I don't know if you know that, he was running getting mm-hmm. his training in, mm-hmm. got shot down. Mm-hmm. That was a citizen's arrest, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. That, and I think if you look back with the history, like, why is that still, why is that still a thing? Why are we still, in fact, even after that situation, why did we not go, okay, maybe we should probably change that? We just watched that situation happen. We never mm-hmm. changed it. Mm-hmm. So I used to, um, and even to this day, I work with a nonprofit. It's the Reentry Roundtable in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Charlene Ottolino is the uh, chairman, and I, I've been helping her out as like, an assistant, hoping to... Uh, to kind of get on board. It's a it's a reentry roundtable for ex-convicts who are getting out of prison, white, black, everything. But here's the thing. Most people don't know what happens when you're in the system. So like sitting on these Zooms with like the mayor of San Diego, chief of police, the DA, all these people, corrections, I started to realize like and you know even with Charlene telling me there's no there's there's no setup for these people that are getting out. Did you know that if you get out of prison right now, any of these prisons and state prisons or federal prisons here in San Diego, you don't get an ID card. As of, as of our last meeting, you don't get an ID card. So what does that mean if you're at, let's say you're 24, right? You committed a crime when you're 18. You robbed a car with your friends. Just putting it out there. I'm sure the stories happen. Let's say you get out of jail. You don't have an ID card. What does that mean for you? You can't get an Obama phone. You can't get a job. What are you going to do? You can't get assistance. Mm-hmm. You can't prove your identity. You're nobody. You're nothing. That's how this. That's how this system works in a lot of ways. Of course, you know that's across the board. That's not just for black black men or black women. But when you look at the percentages of those incarcerated, you can see that this is you know a way to make things like this happen. Um, you know, when you commit a crime, your rights are taken away. Mm-hmm. Your ability to get a job is taken away. You know, you remember when you were younger, people used to say, "Oh, you won't get a job at McDonald's," like. Like, that's something to strive for. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think, I think that's, that's really important to realize that these systems are, are well, well in place. And the changes, you know, you're right. They don't happen with, uh, with conversation. They happen with education. They happen with electing leaders. They happen with creating leaders. Like, that, that young boy that's in your class now, he could be a senator. Mm-hmm. Mm. But he won't be if he just is watching his friends, you know, run around the block and no one's mentoring him mm-hmm. that that's how we make changes um you know for the first time we have a black governor who's who's uh, uh you know um who's running he's not 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 yet but running uh major williams running for governor and i think all these things are new most people aren't used to seeing you know african americans put themselves out there in, in leadership positions uh, where they can make real change mm-hmm. i mean can we can we for a second realize that obama was a big de- that should have been that should have been something that was normal hundreds of years ago mm-hmm. the fact that we made a humongous deal about that I'm, I'm so glad I mean I loved Obama he was my favorite president but the reality is is we we should have had that standard and held ourselves to that standard much long ago and I think at this point the conversations being had and, and African Americans are not going to stop talking about it so whatever whatever happens I mean you know, it's it's one of those things where if it goes in one ear or out the other, you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep saying it until mm-hmm. someone hears us, until someone listens. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we're, because I mean, like who we're talking to mostly, right, in terms of this podcast is students um, who are, I think, in this situation, see what's going on and like want to help, want to fight. Um, they, there's opinions on either side. Um, but even more so, I think, like you said, we have to look back into history to fully grasp mm -hmm. the entirety of the situation and um, how cyclical it is. Um, and that this isn't, like you said, an isolated situation or this is not the first time, mm -hmm. but it's overarching of a greater mm -hmm. um, theme. Um, like you said, I think we don't realize necessarily how psychologically and socially it's been ingrained into us um, that to vilify black men. Um, I think even in film, mm -hmm. like Birth of a Nation, different things like that long ago, the history of blackface, all of those things, you know, um, were, I think, small representations of a greater um, shaping of a system in our country to maintain um, a group of people at a level and things like that. So I think um, all that to say, um, being able to recognize the little things um, and not see them as isolated situations, but to recognize it as a much larger picture that's being formed, um, has been formed, um, and being able to then go from there in terms of this conversation. Something I want to address with this um, is now law enforcement into this conversation. Um, I think in this country, we've reached a point where we have this dichotomy almost of black men in law enforcement, um, which I think is a dangerous precedent in terms of being able to then create change um, in moving forward mm -hmm. and understanding one another. Um, so I wanna ask you guys, you know, what do you think the um, general perception is right now currently of law enforcement in America today? Well, I, I will start by saying that law enforcement is, um, you know, you are what you eat, mm. okay? And it is a close-knit group of professionals who really lean and depend on stuff. I, 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 you didn't say it, but they're, uh, if you're in the military, one of the things that you're taught in the military is to have your, um, uh, the other soldiers back, mm. to be there to support one another. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement really have had to embrace the idea they have to be there for one another. Mm -hmm. And there is this blue wall, which means that whatever goes on behind that blue wall, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, it's always defended and it's always respected. Mm -hmm. They will not give up the blue wall. Mm -hmm. So that is part of what law enforcement has to do in order to survive in order to continue to have some legitimacy. They can't let people know all the bad things that have happened uh, behind that blue wall. And I, I just want to start by saying that there's, I have many people that I've met mentored over the years. Uh, one of the people that I mentor, uh, that I mentored from the time that she was a freshman at the University of San Francisco, mm -hmm. is now the chief of police mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. And uh, she is, she's young, because I don't want you to think I'm that old. 
She's young, mm-hmm. and she's seen the whole spectrum. She represents the best of law enforcement because mm-hmm. she's black. She's young. She's had a full idea of how those things goes in. She had a good liberal arts education, too. Um, she, to me, is how that change happens. When people like that have the bill. Now, she was, a, she was assistant chief of police in Oakland, uh, and she left there to become the chief of police at uh, Portland. And then she was recruited to go from Portland to Philadelphia. Now, what do you know about all three of those cities? In the past three years, they have been in the news for race relations. Mm. Portland, when she got hired, they were in the midst of all of these protests where the white supremacists were uh, uh, attacking uh, blacks in the city. She was born as a black woman, and she handled that. Mm. Just now in Philadelphia, there have been death uh, threats made against her Mm. because of the stand she's taking. There's a white supremacist uh, who was actually arrested and put in jail this past summer because he made death death threats against her. She knows about the blue wall, but she also knows what's decent and what's right. Mm-hmm. So my perspective, my perspectives and perceptions of, of, uh, of, the, of, of law enforcement is that they are what they are, but they can and should and have to change. All the conversations about defunding the police is just one part of a bigger story. Mm. And that story goes back to the conversation we had earlier when every white man, because that's all that could be law enforcement Mm -hmm. for many, many decades, every white man had the ability, whether they were official law enforcement, to detain and citizen arrest any black person. That has continued on into that culture. I think that we can't dismiss law enforcement, but at the same time, we have to call law enforcement to accountability mm. in every instance. There cannot be a blue wall that does not seek out justice and equity for every single person. So that description, the characteristic of who they are, is something that has to be dealt with. I don't think that you have to be someone who's totally committed to that blue wall and still be an effective law enforcement officer. And, and as a result, 5-0 has been made the chief villain in the black community mm-hmm. for many reasons. They arrest all the black people. Another, they don't provide the same type of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I've lived in poor black neighborhoods. You call the police, they may show up, they may not. I've lived into, into, in, in the high rent district. You call the police, 911, they're there in five minutes, mm-hmm. you know? I, I will tell you this one story. I, um, I, uh, the first house I bought was in Los Angeles. It was in a predominantly Jewish um, community. Uh, it was a house right on the street. And one night I was talking to somebody on the phone. Uh, and after I talked to them, we went out to the car to sit and talk in the car because I didn't have privacy in my house. So I was sitting in my car for about 30, 40 minutes talking to this person. And then we decided to drive somewhere to go get something to drink. I think we went to McDonald's or somewhere. And when we were driving there, within two blocks of leaving my home, I was pulled over. Mm. And the police lights went on. So every black man has his story. So don't, this is not anything unique for me. <laughs> I was pulled over and loudspeaker together with the things and yelled out, put your hands out the window. Throw your keys on the ground. Step slowly out of the car. I've been through that whole thing, and, and, and I, I had to put my hands on the car the whole nine yards. And, and 
he said, uh, he looked at my driver and I said, you live at this address? I said, yes, I do. And he said, uh, well, we got a call that there was a suspicious person who was sitting in the car in front of the house. And those people were there and able, and I haven't done anything. That's crazy. And I was potentially arrested, and I haven't done anything. That's crazy. I could. I used to live in the jungle. Uh, any guys know what the jungle is in Los Angeles? Did you guys see the movie The Training Day? Training Day oh, with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that area that he lived in. He's King Kong. You know that whole scene. Mm-hmm. If you've seen that, I used to live there. That is one of the most uh, criminalized neighborhoods in in California, and they call it the jungle for a reason. It's a it's a jungle, but that's not the reason it originally got that name. But it's a, it's, it has that name now. You call the police there, they won't come. They said, we're not coming. Mm. We're not coming. If you want to make a report, come down to the station and make a report. I was just held up by gunpoint in my house. Oh, that's terrible. Is anyone hurt? Do we need to call the ambulance? No. Well, listen, when you get a chance, come down to the police station and make a report. Mm. Those kinds of things change our perceptions of what law enforcement is. And it's, you know, that's, I, I have my own personal experiences. I've heard millions of others who've had the same kind of experience. Yet and still, if you haven't, you look at that and you go, why aren't these black people going along with these law enforcement? Why do they hate law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Because you have not lived that life. Right. You know, I left the jungle and moved to the Jewish neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, things went straight up in terms of response time. <laughs> And and but if you don't you haven't experienced that, you don't know that you've always had police who responded, then you go like police are great. They're wonderful. Why would you not obey them? So they it's it's a range there. I, I, I believe in law enforcement. I have very good friends. My best friend is chief of police in uh, Philadelphia, one of the largest cities in the nation. And uh, she was right where you are. She worked for me for four years, as a matter of fact. Mm. And she has done great things with her life. And I think it can happen. The more we work with people, it can happen. Absolutely. I think, I think law enforcement, uh, like you said, is the, the biggest thing is accountability. You know, uh, you mentioned that I, you know, my military status. So I was a combat medic. I was a corpsman. Um, and just, just flat out, I mean, I could not just go shoot someone. <laughs> that that I, that's not that's not even a thought that any military member that might hear this or you know has been has friends or family in the military that's just not how it goes we have you know um we have firing regulations we have um you know people we have to check in with we have standards we have training we have high stress training to put us in situations i mean we have standards where sometimes even if you're getting shot at you can't shoot back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so my thing is like most people that leave the military and become police officers, it seems like that training and all of that experience just is withered away. I mean, I have lots of friends who are police officers here in San Diego County um, and some others in the East Coast that have moved back home after mm-hmm. military service. And it's tough. You know, I mean, some of them are African-Americans and we have these conversations and, you know, just just like how you can feel like you need to assimilate uh, in a in a big group of, uh, of Caucasians, as a black officer, you might feel the need to assimilate when yeah. you see something that might not necessarily be correct. If you look at uh, George Floyd, watch the video, mm-hmm. you notice there's an Asian police officer there, mm-hmm. and he, he looked at his face and he was like, man, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. You could tell the whole time, he's like, 
this is wrong. This man is dying. But what did he do? He was like, well, like, you know, Billy and Joe aren't going to tell me to stop. So and they're not going to listen to me. So I'm just going to keep my job and keep my head down. And I think I think accountability yeah. is key uh, in the military. You know, there's there's a ton of accountability um, for everything that we do. Everything is documented. Every uh, every situation is is you know, black and white, there's no gray. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's the biggest key is that nowadays, you know, law enforcement has such a negative connotation to it when even when you say that word. Mm. And I think that just starts with within the departments, um, hiring, hiring those who are, you know, from those communities, you know, you don't have to necessarily. So if you go to Chicago, the cops that patrol 63rd and 64th Street, which is the worst place you, you probably know, the worst place you could ever go in the world, like they don't even live there. Mm-hmm. Why would you? In in some places, they require the police officers that patrol and live in the area to become the police officers. That way, when Bobby is, you know, doing something, he's not just a young black male running down the street. You're like, oh, he's playing mm-hmm. football with his friends. You know, it's there's an aspect of um, just distance mm-hmm. where almost like these police officers. Right. are not realizing that they're there to support these communities and service. They work for these communities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's really what we need to get back to in realizing the accountability, that you can't just do whatever you want to do. There are standards, mm-hmm. policies, procedures, and uh, until we get those people that are going to take up um, these new roles and, and, and better our communities, we're, we're going to continue to face these problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you write about that incident with George Floyd where we had – uh, police officers who just stood idly by and that uh, right. Asian gentleman. It's the blue wall. Right. You cannot mm-hmm. ever confront the blue wall because it's not just that situation. It's your entire livelihood. Right. And when you go out on patrol, you need to have people who believe that they're going to have your back. And if not, you could be the next victim, even as a police officer. Blacklisted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Black, and they won't protect you because you're supposed to protect one another. And it's just survival. And so that blue wall has to come down. It has to be something. And I appreciate what you said about the military because it has to be a situation where we have some protocols that are followed and there are no exceptions to it. But those protocols have to include the demolition of that fraternity of that blue hall there is other ways to accomplish supporting one another believing one another without it being no matter what and a lot of that blue wall came from people who were involved in illegal activities to begin with mm-hmm. so if you drop a dime on me then everyone goes down and so they keep that going not just for the unnecessary um, violence um, against a black potential perpetrator, but every aspect of their uh, policing. They don't want people in a position where they can drop a dime or inform on them. So it's, it's, it's a very uh, a complex situation, mm-hmm. and it involves literally tens of thousands of people who are stuck in the middle of it. It's difficult to get because it's not just the the, the violence against uh, black men. It's the it's the the crime a graft taking um, all kinds of uh, bribes under the table, uh, stealing information, stealing drugs. All those things are happening because everyone who's a police officer is not uh, doesn't have the the the, the best 
you know, character in the world. Mm -hmm. And so once you start down that road, that becomes one more thing. I don't know what that Asian uh, person experienced in his years on the force, but all those things come to bear on that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, plus the fact the person who had actually um, uh, had his uh, foot on George Floyd's, he knew George Floyd, Mm -hmm. and he was involved in some illegal activities. That policeman was, according to the information that they've released right. of what I yeah. understand, is irrefutable mm-hmm. that they were involved with some some. So that all that enters into the picture. It's not just I was a racist and I hate black people. Mm-hmm. This that blue wall that wants to protect everyone behind it, right. and that has to be dealt with. Accountability is the way that that happens. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think you know from hearing your answer something that's been of value to me is not only hearing the commonalities in your answers, but also hearing the different perspectives from which you speak on, um, just from being, you know, in different generations and things like that as well. Now we're um, close. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we close. <laughs> um, I kind of want, I want to read something um, in terms of some research of addressing, I think, um, you know, how incarceration of black men in the increasing percentages also has a direct impact on um, family units mm. and things yeah. like that and how that's integral integral in how we how youth are raised um, and so I want to ask you guys a question after that but to start off so the article raising black males key ingredients to successful outcomes in black male development based on a program presented at the 2012 American Counseling Association conference presents that parental behaviors have led to successful outcomes in black men in particular, include A, a persistent focus and parental engagement and academic achievement, B, limit setting and discipline, C, parental love, support, communication, and guidance, D, fathers who are positive role models and supported the family both financially and with their time, E, and creating a sense of connectedness to the community and to community resources. Mm -hmm. So one of the reflection questions of the paper was, Based on your own experience, knowledge, and insight, what do you believe it takes to raise a successful black male in America today? The essential ingredients that emerged from this question included fathers as role models, extended family support, church exposure, extracurricular activities, and a sustained emphasis on education. An additional factor that was added was the theme of friendship. The participants recalled a strong authoritative relationship with their fathers and they wished that they would have felt comfortable talking to them about the many issues those young men faced as they grew up. The participants desire a friendship with their sons, one in which their sons would feel comfortable talking to them about anything. So, um, you have a son. Yes, I do. Yes. Um, and... I don't know if you have a son, <laughs> no, no. but no kids. you know, you guys, um, there's commonalities in this conversation you share just through your experience and your relatability to one another. Um, but there's also differences just in the times you grew up and things like that as well. So my question is, you know, first off, do you think, um, just generationally being different that has like altered or there's a difference in perspective and how you view like we talked about black men in America today law enforcement in America today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then after that I kind of want to ask you as we try to move forward right to progress into some type of change mm-hmm. um, how do we do that through 
raising our youth and mm-hmm. things like that? What are the conversations we're having where we aim to have in that as well? Mm-hmm. Good question. I guess you'll start with me because I actually do have a son. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it would be interesting to hear your perspective because I, I, I was at least raised with a lot of extended family. You said you came from a single pa- parent home. Is that correct, Ty? Yeah, it was just me and my mom. Yeah. And so you were going to get very much um, uh, some things that are the same, but I, I cannot say that I've actually uh, lived the type of uh, um, arrangement you had in terms of your family uh, unit. Uh, so I was brought up in, in an extended family. There were three generations that lived in the same house. Uh, the grandparents, my mother and father, and then their children. We all brought up in the same house. Mm. And that was something to behold because not only did you have your parents, which you should respect, you had your parents who were respecting another set of people in the house. And so you couldn't, ex- you couldn't escape from it. Uh, it was a sense that um, everyone had to be on the same page for that. Um, and I, like I said, my father was in and out of the home mm-hmm. uh, until my parents did eventually get a divorce. Uh, that was because uh, my father was a uh, he was an alcohol- alcoholic, and uh, he was a gambler. Uh, he was brought up in a um, society that black men were not given a full opportunity to engage in um, in commerce to the point that they could actually support a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer. He was a crasher. A sharecropper for a great deal of his life, but he eventually bought his own property. So I worked on a farm in the hot, humid summers, picking cotton and chopping corn, things that you probably don't have any idea what I, what I just told you. But those things mold you in a way that's different than how young men are molded today, whether it's an urban setting or in a rural setting, because I was uh, raised in a rural setting. And I had to make a huge adjustment from the way that I was raised to the way that I would approach my son. Mm-hmm. One of the things was approaching him. You talk about the positive family nucleus. One of the things that I could afford him that I was never afforded was the vision that he could be or do anything he wants to do mm-hmm. or be, which is something that many families aren't able to impart Mm -hmm. to their children. That is what I would think is the most important thing that we can do is have family units that imbue upon the young people, especially young men, that they're capable of doing anything they want to do. If you want to be a minister, you can be a minister. If you want to be um, an electrician or engineer, you can do that. If you want to be a teacher, whatever you do, You can be that, and you can be the best person who's doing that thing. If you want to be a bank robber, just be a bank robber. Be the best bank (laughs) robber you can be. But you can be anything that you want to be. That is a message that's not being heard in a sincere fashion. When you hear people who are winning the Academy Award, and I want to tell all the young people out there, just dream it. You can be anything you want to be. That goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. You have to have that connection. Someone needs to tell you that, that really loves you and believes you, and then can help you become that thing. When Ariana Grande said, oh, you you can dream like you can be. She isn't in my life. She can't make me anything more than just an object. Whereas a family, whether it's a father or mother, 
and it, it doesn't make any difference to me. I want to be honest. The positive male image can be imparted to a male through a female. Right. It doesn't have to always be a male that does that. Yeah. Right. And sometimes I think, and I'm glad you had women talk about the whole idea of the male, the black male, and black lives matter. But I do think that that is a responsibility for everyone mm. to share with young people you're from. You can be and do anything you, wanted to, you want to be. My son wanted to go into the entertainment industry. He, mm-hmm. he wants to do movies. He is doing movies. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. If I had said that when I was 20 years old, I would have been, are you insane? You know, you better go out and get a job so we can, you know, whatever. Uh, You got to support yourself. And um, and I've I've been on my own since I was 16 years old. I have never lived at home since I was 16. Mm -hmm. I have supported myself. My family has never, they were never able to do anything to help support me. It wasn't because they didn't want to. They couldn't. And... If we can, could, could just capture that and just say, you have someone that's in your corner. I did my doctoral dissertation on mentorship, by the way, mm. on mentoring, because I felt that was a very important aspect of becoming who you are meant to be and who you're called to be, is to have a mentor or someone can help shape that journey with you, not for you, with you. And I really feel that uh, parents... Uh, regardless of their gender, have that responsibility to, to impart that to, our, our, to the next generation. And then with that, um, I, I do believe, and I'm going to get to the other part of your question. Let's let here tie, then I want to yeah. get to the other, because I, I do have some thoughts about where to go from here. Mm-hmm. We'll do that tie. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 absolutely. And I think, I think what you said is really important. Like, you know, I said, I didn't have a father really growing up. Um, I've rekindled my relationship with him as I became older. But um, I had a lot of mentors. I had a lot of, you know, African-American men who came into my life. And some of them, you know, have stayed even to this day. And I think that's really, that really helped me. But also, like you said, like, it doesn't have to be a male. My mom, like, she raised me really well. And, like, she's, like, the most awesome uh just trying to think of the right words for the <laughs> podcast. She's the most awesome woman I've ever met. She's so strong. Like she's uh, she has polio, and she uh, she got her bachelor's degree, and like did did all these things. But it, it just made me realize, like when I was younger, because I just had her, and I was in school, and I was always facing situations like I talked about earlier, where I definitely felt incapable, or like I was trying to chase an unrealistic goal. And my mom would always be like, "No, you can do it." Like, no, she had this delusional confidence in me like delusional like oh you're gonna be a movie star oh no you're gonna be a doctor and a movie star you're gonna do it all you know and yeah I think that really does translate um because as a kid I I had that like I was like you know what it's me it's her and she says I can do it like I don't care what he said that my mom said I could do it you know what I mean and I think that's super important some of us don't have that but um that's why I think it's really important also to like what we spoke about earlier in the podcast, there is that generational trauma that comes down. Mm-hmm. And I think it's extremely important to reparent yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I think probably when I joined the military, I, uh, I grew up, it, you know, it was just me and my mom, like I said, she was uh, um, disabled. So she could never really afford for me to, to do anything. So, you know, I knew at 17, I was like, okay, um, I have, what am I going to do? You know, and I was like, all right, this is the way, this is the path. This is how I get myself out. This is how I bring my family out. So, you know, like part of that is reparenting. Part of that is like telling yourself, like, okay, I can do this. 
okay, I may not have the skills to do this, but I can learn. Mm-hmm. You know, if what I like to say is like, and I tell my clients as, as a trainer, like if another human being can do it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. If they bleed, you bleed. And that's, and that's really true is like, you have to get out of that mentality where like, you're just a human being. Mm-hmm. No one is better than you. Any skill set that someone can, can learn, you know, if you think about it neurologically, mm-hmm. you can learn it too. Mm-hmm. Just might take you more time, but you can learn it too. And I think um, having those conversations with yourself, mm-hmm. and if you're listening to this podcast, if you're a young college student, maybe first time away from home, you know, realize what standards has someone else set for you mm-hmm. in your life. Like, like what he said, uh, you know, my mom, when I was really young, she thought I could be a doctor. She thought that. So I believe that. And to this day, I believe, obviously, I believe that more now <laughs> as I'm here. But the thing is, you know, what if someone goes, oh, no, nah, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You're going to live your whole life with that standard. Like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I should go get a job. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's really reparenting yourself, realizing what beliefs you are, are holding on to. Because your beliefs form your habits. Mm-hmm. And your habits form the results. Mm-hmm. So if you have this belief that you can never be anything but a thug, what are you going to be? Mm-hmm. What habits are you going to continue to do? Yeah. You know what I mean? Probably things we don't want to talk about on this podcast. But <laughs> that's, that's the reality is um, really like taking a look at yourself and realizing that you can do whatever you want. And it just comes down to being your own parent. You know, giving, you know just like if you're going to talk to a kid, you know, telling him you can do it or you got this or you know, you're smart enough. Mm-hmm. Every time you look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always do want to acknowledge, though, that uh, every uh, child doesn't have the benefit of a parent or a mentor or someone telling them that they can be whatever they want to be. Because mm. right. it's difficult to tell somebody you can be whatever you want to do. You don't be when well, you don't even believe it about yourself. Right. And so many uh, parents or individuals out there, they have no faith in themselves that they can accomplish things that are worthwhile. So it's hard for them to tell someone else. Mm. Right. You know, it's, it, and it, even if they haven't accomplished anything themselves, if they believe that they could, they can impart it. But if they don't think about themselves, they're not going to do it mm-hmm. because right. they don't know how to do it. And they right. know that it would be in almost essentially false uh, to even say that. So that's a, that's a tough situation to be in. But there are literally millions of people who are in that situation where they don't have someone Mm -hmm. that can do that. So I want to get to the last part here. I want to do that because I know that uh, uh, this time is drawing to a close. We're trying to bring this plane in for (laughs) landing. (laughs) Um, But when we talk about the status of the black male in this society here in the United States, I really uh, uh, we, we want us to know that we should not be in a situation where we're either blaming or apologizing Mm. for what it is that um, we are experiencing. And a lot of that happens um, where people want to blame others or blame themselves Mm. because of the status of black men. And then people who want to apologize, you know, for that poor victim uh, who um, uh, seems to not have their act together and and they're part of the, in the criminal justice system. Those are two things that really do nothing to change the situation. What does, and this is my challenge uh, to all the students who are here to get in the habit today 
of learning people individually, True. not what you perceive them to be, but it becomes your responsibility to know people. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge ask mm-hmm. to get to know people. One of the biggest reasons people cannot invest into knowing other people because they don't know themselves yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's twofold. Know yourself mm-hmm. so that you can know others. When you know yourself, you're not blaming yourself. You're not criticizing yourself. You're not apologizing. And you're not doing that to the other person. Right. So you need to know yourself mm-hmm. so that you can invest in knowing others. And then when you know others, you can invest in them and they can conversely invest in you. Especially our, some of our students who feel awkward about going out, meeting other people, sharing with them. They don't want to get in a position where uh, they would say the wrong thing or be perceived the wrong way. That takes courage. But that courage only comes when you know yourself, you're confident as to who you are and what your intentions are. Mm. Because if you don't, you are going to remain in that same space and don't grow yourself individually. And so I I think when it comes to uh, the status of black male, it comes down to each individual male. There's not going to be a, a, a swipe of a pen on the document that's going to change the status of, you can't change people's opinions, their perceptions, the stereotypes. But individually, one by one, we can make some type of difference. And we, it's not setting our standards or our, our, or our, our actual outcomes so low. We're setting them at a place where they are achievable. Anytime you make smart goals, they have to be achievable. I can't make things better for all the black men here in San Diego, but the one or two that I meet, I will do something to get to know them so that we can have a productive relationship that leads to something that everyone wins. Mm -hmm. So that's just just an idea I have of getting to know people. So even when I meet people like Ty, you may think I'm being nosy. I'm asking all these questions and I'm telling you about myself. It's so you will know me and I'll know you and we can go to a higher level in that relationship. Right. And then we duplicate that over and over with other people. Right. And mm-hmm. then it becomes more manageable and productive in the end. So. You can only know someone as deep as you know yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's so powerful, like the power of an individual as well. And that's what we really need to focus on is that like, it's not just, you know, trying to change. Uh, you know, it's like when someone tries to do a big task, right? You ever seen that picture of a, of a, of a ladder? There's the ladder with a bunch of little steps and then a ladder with huge steps. And when you look at something as big as the race issue in America, mm-hmm. that's daunting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've had civil rights leaders who are uh, way more uh, uh, equipped to handle situations like that than me or like myself and others. But the thing is, it's, it's not about one man or one movement or one event. It's about individually every single day showing up and trying to make a change in your community. And I think um, as African-American men, you know, supporting each other is, is key mm-hmm. because eventually, and I really do believe this, in a couple of years, I really think things will change because of the, uh, 
the way that we're investing in ourselves and allowing ourselves to be in those positions to make those changes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you for having me on this podcast. And yeah. Senior, thank you so much for yeah. inviting oh, us to talk about this. No, I mean, you already answered my last question of advice. It seems like you guys almost already knew what the question was going to be, like I sent it to you already or something. Um, but this is now the time as we wrap up Um, First, I want to thank you guys both for being on this podcast. Um, I always say this at every episode. This isn't, you know, where the conversation ends. This is where it begins even more. So um, being able to normalize conversations like this within our PLNU community, within the community as a whole. Um, So thank you for being a part of that. Um, And I'm sure we're going to hear from you both again. Um, But is there anything, I always say, self-promo, is there anything you guys want to promote? Or any last words that you want to leave with at all? This is your time. Well, I don't. I don't know when this is going to be aired. Uh, the timeliness of this. Next Monday. Next Monday. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to a promo for an event that we're having on this Friday, mm. uh, leaning into anti-racism, our own ongoing, ongoing journey. Uh, that has been uh, put on by the Alumni Association here mm. at Point Loma, and I'll be part of a panel that will be sharing some ideas on that. So that will be recorded as well. And so even if you're listening to this later on, mm-hmm. I do uh, want to encourage you to uh, look for that particular um, event that will be available uh, via social media and other uh, venues uh, through the Alumni Department here at Point Loma Nazarene University. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, and I think, um, you know, something I tell all my clients, like taking care of your health is really, really important. It's what actually is the catalyst for most change in your life, taking care of yourself and realizing your worth. So, uh, you know, if, if you're look, you know, reading this pod or listening to this podcast and interested in making some changes in your life, um, I am a transformation coach. And you can check out my website, tybaker.com, T-Y-B-A-K-R.com. I, I think taking taking ownership of your health and where you're at in life is is really key because accountability is everything and we have to realize that we are really the writers of our destiny mm. and if you uh, if you're taking care of your health you're taking care of your mental your spiritual self you know you're only setting yourself up for success and when you neglect those things everything else comes crashing down so mm. hopefully you take care of that hope you have a great rest of your uh, day and uh, stay safe out there awesome. repeat that um uh, web address, the URL again? It's uh, T-Y-B-A-K-R.com. It's my name. Okay. Yeah. And it has promos and discounts? Absolutely. Oh, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you right. Don't worry. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you both, um, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bella. Thank you for listening to our podcast and for supporting us. And stay tuned for when we come back in two weeks as we invite Dr. Rebecca Laird, Professor of Christian Ministry and Practice, and Joanne Yu, Treasurer of Break, the Gender Equality Club, on to discuss what the term Christian feminist means and break down the intersectionality of this dichotomy. Until then, be sure to stay safe, and we will see you soon. Take care. This podcast would not be made possible without the Office of Multicultural and International Student Services at Point Loma Nazarene University. It was executively produced by Bella Passi and Sam Kupong. It was written by Fernanda Viana and Bella Passi. Research was done by Fernanda Viana. It was filmed by Kevin Langley from the Media Services Department of Point Loma Nazarene University. Edited by Bella Passi.